0: And I'm Alan, and this is Shadows and Shamblers.
1: Please stand as you are able for this week's reading, which comes to us from the Book of Nancy. The most potent weapon of control for the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. Now you may be seated. This week, we watched American Gods, Episode 4, The Greatest Story Ever Told. So what did you think?
0: I think this episode opens really strong, but then ends really weak. Uh, I love like all the stuff in Ibis's place with Bilquis and Mr. Nancy and Wednesday and Shadow's sales pitch to money was interesting. But like for me, Tech Boy's plot was the most uneven thing. It went from really good at the beginning to like really bad at the end for me. How about you?
1: Yeah, I agree. All the stuff at the funeral home is really strong and the best part of the episode. But I also really loved the opening with the young tech executive. I thought Wednesday and Shadow also had some good moments that really showed off Ricky Whittle and Ian McShane's acting. But in terms of overall effect, I thought the money plotline was actually the weakest. Um But maybe I'm just a sucker for Bruce Langley's like big theatrical style of acting for Technical Boy, or I had like way more lingering goodwill from the opening than you did. (laughs) But before we dig in, let's talk about this week's creators. Peter Calloway and Aditi Brennan-Capil wrote this episode. Calloway has written on Legion and Under the Dome. Kapil is getting her start on American Gods as a staff writer, but has also written for the theater. And this episode was directed by Stacey who uh, who is directed for House of Cards and Transparent.
0: Let's recap what happened this week. Somewhere in America, a father tries to share his love of classical music with his son, but the boy can only connect to technology. In Cairo... Shadow dreams of sex with the Egyptian goddess Bast and wakes up completely healed, except for a few scratches. Bilquis and Mr. Nancy visit Mr. Ibis to convince him to evolve or defend Black America from injustice. Meanwhile, at Blackbriar, Mr. World gives the technical boy one last chance to redeem himself. And so he visits the CEO of Zycom. In St. Louis, Shadow and Wednesday go backstage to meet the God of Money, and Shadow realizes his value. At Zycom, the CEO doesn't understand Technical Boy's plan, and Mr. World orders new media to reveal how technology can track everyone. Then he traps the Technical Boy. Mr. World joins Shadow and Wednesday to offer an alliance with money, but he chooses to remain neutral. Nothing happens this week on American Gods. (laughs) I (laughs) mean, yes, (laughs) but also I think that's
1: only true if you're thinking about it like a TV show, which to be fair, it is a TV show. Um. But, like, if you think about it more like a novel, like, stuff does happen. It just, I don't know. I think a lot of people don't like the pacing because it is not paced like a TV show. Like, stuff doesn't happen, um, but it's more about kind of just, like, being there, setting the scene, the tone, and the character in a way that, like, we're used to just accepting from words on a page. And we're not as used to accepting from
0: a TV show. In my head, like I was comparing it to like Game of Thrones versus like Lost, you know, like Game of Thrones, things will like nudge forward incrementally, but then you'll get like a couple of big moments, like, I can't believe this guy died, or, you know, whatever. Yeah. But then, like, in Lost, it has, like, this very satisfying episodic feel, but then the macro story will also get nudged along at the same time, and I'm like, I want that second one.
1: I mean, that is my favorite type of TV, right? Like, that Buffy goodness. Mm -hmm. But I'm also fine with this. I mean, I wonder how much of it is the fact that, like, I'm Preparing to sit down and have a two hour conversation about it, right? <laughs> um, and there's like a lot of like clearly intentional, thematically crunchy stuff. Whereas maybe if you are just watching more casually, it's less satisfying.
0: I was thinking about storytelling and like the all the crunchy stuff in this because of like the uh Mr. Wednesday speech about money and like the title of the episode, The Greatest Story Ever Told, and like that's what he says is like what money is, is the greatest story ever told, where we think it has value, but it's just a piece of paper or it's just like a symbol. It's kind of also like exactly what this show is about, you know, like the story of America, what we tell ourselves, what's real, what's not real. And that like thread of the story we tell ourselves and the story that society tells us was like the thing holding this uh, episode together I thought mm-hmm. is so interesting to have Mr. Nancy talk about that exact same thing which was like the quote that you pulled at the beginning um, made me think of this uh, this quote from N.K. Jemisin from her uh, fifth season books it's an emperor talking he says um, tell them they can be great someday like us tell them they belong among us no matter how we treat them Tell them they must earn the respect which everyone else receives by default. Tell them there is a standard for acceptance. That standard is simply perfection. Kill those who scoff at the contradictions and tell the rest that the dead deserve annihilation for their weakness and doubt. Then they'll break themselves trying for what they'll never achieve. And it's like you enslave yourself to try and become a part of the system um which is such a sinister concept but is kind of like totally how you can use social storytelling to control entire groups of people entire classes of people um mm-hmm. which is totally something that happens in America and I love the little story that shadow gets from Wednesday where shadow is like why me what what is I don't understand. And Wednesday tries to convince him in exactly the same way that Jemison was talking about, Well, you're worthless. I needed somebody who's garbage. Um mm-hmm. and Shadow realizes, like, that's not true. You you need me. So what is going on? Which is such a good insight for him to have. It's kind of like, Thank you, Shadow, for like waking up and getting with the program. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I loved that part. That was in my, like, summary of my feelings at the beginning. um, That was, like, kind of the the part that I was referring to. I really loved in this episode that they actually gave Shadow something different to do. And he's starting to push back against Wednesday more. I also really loved Ricky Whittle's performance right after he woke up from the succubus. (laughs) And Mr. Ibis asked him how he slept.
0: Did you sleep well?
1: Well, Well...
0: yeah, yeah, it's good. Good. Yeah, I'm fine. It's good.
1: (laughs) Does Wednesday know? Because he has that comment, something about licking his wounds. Oh,
0: no, I think he totally knows.
1: Is he just like, does he think that like... Fucking a succubus is gonna make him not want Laura anymore, or like I
0: <laughs> so. This is uh supposed to be Bast, um, who is an Egyptian oh. goddess. And so, if you think about when Shadow showed up to their place with Sam, there was two statues standing there, each of them had like a human body and an animal head. One of them was a dog, and the other one was a bird. And
1: mm-hmm. that is that's Ibisendriko
0: exactly that in that are the way that the idols looked in Egypt. Imagine the same thing, but with a cat head and that's Bast.
1: Oh, oh and that's the cat. That's why they refer to it as a sister.
0: Exactly. It, that's the house oh, okay. cat. And Bast was the patron goddess of house cats, which were sacred to Egyptians in kind of the same way that, you know, like cows are sacred in India. Like, it would be very bad luck for you to kill a cat in ancient Egypt. If you were just a regular person and someone in your family got sick, you would make offerings to Bast to heal the sick person. And so that's why she is healing Shadow.
1: I see. Okay, so she's not sucking his soul out or whatever. She's
0: she's literally, like, licking his wounds and <coughs> healing him. um this scene is right out of the book. Oh, um, I
1: can't believe how wrong I was. <laughs> it's okay.
0: <laughs> it's I think it's confusing. I know. I don't think that the show makes it clear what's happening. Like, you could easily I think come to the conclusion that Mr. Wednesday, like hooked him up with something that has nothing to do with Ibis and Jaquel.
1: That's what I thought. I mean, I, I knew that the cat was somehow connected to Ibis and Trikel, but I didn't make the connection that the cat was connected to the woman.
0: I actually think this scene is really mishandled. For one thing, I think it's boring. If you compare it to other sex scenes that we've had in the show where humans and gods have sex, like, you know, Salim and the djinn. Or uh,
1: Bilquis and anybody.
0: And anybody, exactly. And it seems like... Shadow is dreaming here um, and that's what happens in the book he's having a dream uh, which turns into like a sexy dream and then he when he wakes up he's confused like did I like what happened and then Mm -hmm. he throws the sheets off and he's like all scratched up but otherwise he's completely healed and he's like oh weird like did that happen did that not happen but it seems more explicit in the show you're like yeah you're just you're having sex and then you woke up and you had sex. Like it's not, there's no mystery to it. It's not weird. It's just a sex scene. And it's confusing exactly what's going on unless you're familiar with the book, I think. It doesn't need to be like the book. It needs to be like the show. And sex with gods in the show is weirder than this.
1: That's Alan's final verdict. The sex was
0: not weird enough. <laughs> <laughs> Too normal.
1: Um, but back to the greatest story ever told, <laughs> Money slavery
0: <laughs> i
1: mean in a way right like slavery is money you know
0: interesting yeah
1: like that that's like the whole point of slavery right mm-hmm. it's free labor and that's like the whole point of reparations um which people are talking a lot about these days black people were harmed in america and black people are the reason why america is so fucking wealthy and so we should like share some of the goddamn wealth
0: yeah america is like a commercial empire like literally we are mm-hmm. a worldwide empire built on our commercial prowess and we continue to do that via slavery we just do our slavery offshore and we don't think of it as slavery we don't think of it at all but yeah. it is
1: like on one level i kind of appreciate high fashion like aesthetically, but also the idea that to modern Americans clothes are essentially disposable objects Mm -hmm. um, and that you have to like revamp your wardrobe every season is like kind of revolting and like obviously not sustainable in the context of, you know, a growing population and climate change and all of that.
0: Same thing for phones. It's like fashionable to have the coolest newest piece of tech. Like, I think that's a part of this episode too, is like technical boys, whole storyline, like starts out with like the pong game, which was really expensive piece of um, technology back in the seventies. And then that character like graduates to a game boy. You see like his dad's stereo setup is like cutting edge and that it was like that cutting edge is part of that character's story of his identity.
1: Yeah, so I don't know if you noticed this but the um scene setting shot of the like Infinity Loop headquarters. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's clearly modeled after uh, Apple Park in Cupertino which um it basically oh. looks just like that but instead of an infinity symbol it's just a a single loop oh
0: um, I didn't know. and we know can that.
1: put a link to the picture in the show notes actually i put a link in the the planning doc if you if you click on the apple headquarters
0: yeah i'm not familiar with apple park at all
1: i honestly didn't know either but uh, oh
0: wow yeah yeah that see is.
1: it's very spot on
0: yeah um I was like
1: I asked my roommate, I was like, what is that based on? It must be based off of something in real life and he knew.
0: Yeah, so I think they're definitely trying to say something, right? Like Apple was like the tech giant and now Mm -hmm. it's really all about what's on your phone, not what is your phone.
1: And and that's like the Cupertino Menlo Park split, right? Is like, Mm
0: -hmm. you know,
1: Apple was the old big boy in town and now it's like everything's all about Facebook which owns Instagram and and like all of that.
0: It's that relationship again, right? Of like the story that we tell people and the slavery and like the tech boy is trying to play on this connection that he has to the CEO. And I don't think he's interested in that. It seems like, I, I don't totally know what's going on with this story. Like I find the ending very dissatisfying. I don't know what like new media shows him these kind of like, whirling connections and I'm not totally sure what that is but it makes me think of the way that he aggregated the notes of Bach and then allowed it to kind of write itself like he created an algorithm and I'm like so is Mm -hmm. he seeing the new algorithm of how to like is he seeing big data
1: yeah I kind of saw the the image that new media put on the screen just as a visual representation of the new media like social network it is not about technology and isolation it is about the social networks and how new media really kind of has made technical boy obsolete in the modern world like media and technology are not separate they are merged together you know it's like twitter where you and i perhaps spend too much time You know, (laughs) it's like it is your social connection and it is also your like news source. And like Mm. instead of reading long articles, you know, people are like getting their actual news in 280 character fragments,
0: whereas like media used to be like the newscaster on your television. Now, new media is also like the friends that you might talk about that news with and the news.
1: Yeah. And it appears at the same time both kind of faceless because there's no newscaster like it's it's mm-hmm. just like words but also it's it's like coming to you from your peers or you know influencers or whatever. Right. The part of that scene that was the weirdest to me was just that the CEO seemed really passive and he like barely spoke at mm-hmm. all. Yeah. Um, and like Bruce Langley's so big he he kind of like takes up a lot of space but I just felt like they did all the trouble of like getting us to know the CEO character in the opening and then he was just like a complete blank slate in that scene and I don't blame the actor at all I think it's it's like the way it was conceived of and written and directed I wish we had gotten a little bit more from him
0: yeah it's confused like i don't understand what's happening i don't know if mr world was like blocking tech boy's ability to like do this pitch or if it the pitch is actually confusing it doesn't seem that confusing to me he's like saying you know it's teed up just hit it um and he's like what do you mean and it's like it's dude it's not a mystery like you seem really smart
1: i did like his comment about like Shooting out a pink chip and everyone going (laughs) gaga over it
0: (laughs) i mean that's apple right it's like yeah yeah. no
1: absolutely and i love to the way they had like um the messages on the screens behind technical boy
0: that's so good yep maybe part of what's going on in that scene is like we're talking about this impersonal technology it's like the difference between an emotional connection and an intellectual connection, and when we get to the end with money, that's why he says he won't make a choice. Because he says, like I'm honored to have the big dogs and the God game begging at my table, but money doesn't make emotional investments or invest in emotional entities. Too much risk
1: in such ventures. Not enough opportunity. You could always add your bets. There's no deal for you here today, gentlemen. Money stays in the bank. It's <sighs> disagreeable. What a sad waste of capital. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's like Mr. Wednesday's pitch to him is like war gets people passionate, and passion gets them spending. Wednesday wants to use the emotions of the people around him to control them and how that's not working for him. um, And how like that story is breaking down for him. I just think it's interesting, but I also think it's like kind of mismanaged in this episode.
1: There are a lot of ways in which they're kind of like trying to draw parallels between the different stories. So like um, Bill Quiss is quoting from a raisin in the sun. Anansi Mm -hmm. is quoting from Maya Angelou Mm-hmm. um so they're sort of like invoking storytelling also in that way there's like a moment in the conversation between Bilquis and Ruby um the girl whose grandmother died um where they actually are talking about money and so I think that's like another kind of tenuous link
0: yeah isn't it interesting that they have that little chapel in in Ibis and Jaquel's business like that's weird to me a little bit is it? Um, I
1: thought a lot of funeral homes have, like, a, a chapel attached oh, sure. to them.
0: But, the, like, these gods have a temple to another god in...
1: Oh, I see. In like, Well, you know, maybe they're friends with one of the Jesuses, so <laughs> they just hang out
0: sometime. Black Jesus comes around, and he's like,
1: what's yeah, up? no, Black Jesus would totally <laughs> love to hang out there.
0: <laughs> we need to see Black Jesus. There should be a Black Jesus on the show.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Wednesday's also trying to like sell shadow on a story about himself mm-hmm. that he fails to successfully do right before Wednesday and Mr. World both fail to sell their story to money.
0: Yeah, Wednesday is kind of slipping, right? It feels like Yeah. Which I like actually. I like the that motion for his character. I feel like he has an easier time conning humans than he does gods. Mm-hmm. Like, he had this same problem with Chernabog, where he shows up with gifts for him, and Chernabog's like, get out. And it's Shadow who seals that deal. Even when they go into the carousel, Shadow tells them, you know, like, earn the trust of humanity again you know like rise to the occasion kind of and i I feel like that same argument happens again in this episode like in a pretty cool way where nancy is trying to convince ibis and also bilquis on a certain level we're responsible to to the people in america who look like us to Mm -hmm. use our power to help them and Bilquis is making the argument to Ibis that she made in the carousel of evolve or die. Like, what did you think about that whole thing, like the two stories that they're selling there?
1: I guess I didn't really think about it that way. I do really like that it's clear that Nancy actually cares about the people who are worshipping him, and he does want to give back which is kind of like the argument that Wednesday has been making, but it feels disingenuous from him because I at no point think that Wednesday gives a shit about the people who worship him.
0: Mm-mm, no.
1: um, and I think this episode also gives a bit of a broader argument for like, what is the point of religion and what are the actual good things that religion delivers? Um, and we get that from Ruby because um, Bilquist asks her. Um, you know, and her answers are are like community and feeling like there's a point to life. And I actually I think that's like kind of an important note for the show to hit occasionally, given the fact that it's kind of like taking a very metaphorical and meta approach to religion um, and like playing around with it a lot. I think it does make sense to pay respect a little bit to, to organized religion, you know, cause like a lot of their audience is probably going to have religious beliefs.
0: I really liked in this episode too, the, that the prologue, like the opening, the way that it ended with the technical boy in the church. And that you see that, that character, the, the boy who becomes the CEO, he can find the divine through his connection with technology. And I really liked that. that we can find divinity in all human experience. That, you know, the new gods are not like purely evil.
1: Yeah. And that's kind of a lead in to one of the main things that I wanted to talk about, which is all about that opening. So I think the dad definitely sees a sort of dichotomy or contrast between soulless technology and math um with like soulful analog music like i don't think it's an accident that he's playing a record and not a cd
0: that's so smart yeah um Mm -hmm.
1: it echoes the like larger thematic dichotomy in the book right between the old gods the analog gods that like care about you and like have this like deep history Um, That's sort of like wedded to ancient civilizations and like the evolution of humans and like humanity um, versus the new gods um, as these like recent creations that don't give back and are just, you know, feeding on us kind of parasitically. Mm -hmm. I love how the opening, like it makes that comparison through the dad character um, and it's like sympathetic to the dad character. But it also is problematizing it a little bit and and saying, like, actually, that perspective is a little bit of a a generational shift in perspective that, like, old people see, you know, like millennial reliance on technology or whatever, as as like soulless and soul crushing. um, But actually... You know, and like we're taking the art out of everything, and everything is just like hard edges and technology and totally predictable. But you know, like the way that our generation sees it, technology is just a tool, like another way of accessing the same thing. What made his music good was that um he programmed it to break the rules. Mm-hmm. You know, and he is he is kind of like accessing the same thing, just in a different way. It's kind of arguing that technology isn't just, you know, like bad and soulless.
0: Yeah, that's what I really liked about the prologue was like where it lands. And mm-hmm. you, you see the technical boy and you're like, oh, there's like this connection that he has to the divine because I really liked his ability to create something that his father found beautiful, but that was algorithmically created his father only dislikes it once he finds that out that is all about the story that he's telling himself right that technology is bad and humanity is good
1: yeah and like generational conflict is one of my narrative catnips so (laughs) (laughs) of course like i i really loved um That aspect of it. So it reminds me of, um, I just listened to an episode of Song Exploder about the theme song for the podcast Reply All. And it is like kind of a techno remix based on Bach. Like a lot of Bach's music is basically like taking chords and then playing them in a sequence. Um, He like compressed them back down to the chords and like played all the notes in each measure all at one time. And then like layered on a bunch of weirdo interesting songs anyway uh we can put the link in the show notes and you should definitely listen to it uh the program that he wrote kind of reminded me of that i also really liked what i interpreted as as non-linear storytelling uh in the opening and i'm curious if you interpreted it the same way that i did so chronologically from what we see he rushes to that girl's room And it's like clearly like very moved by her violin playing before we see the funeral scene for his father. And I was wondering if you interpreted that as like nonlinear storytelling.
0: No, but now that you say that, actually, it kind of solves the problem of like, everybody starting to tap their feet and stuff. I think that's like the moment for him where like something's coming together, right?
1: Normally, I'm the person who, like, doesn't draw those connections. (laughs) I'm the the strangely literal person who's just, like, I feel like this would have been better if they had switched the order. Um, But this, I, it just, like, it was so intuitive to me, and it worked so beautifully. Because it was, like, as soon as we saw that scene, I was, like, oh, his dad died. I just, like, picked it up immediately, and then later on, we actually see the funeral. So I was just kind of like rearranging everything in my head.
0: Some of the strongest directing in this episode happens in that prologue. Like it has a really strong vision. It's really powerful. And it like set me at ease in the episode. I was like, oh, this is, I like this. Mm -hmm. Um, And then like, I felt like as the episode went on, I became less and less comfortable with the directing choices that happened.
1: I mean, a lot of the coming to America sequences do kind of work that way but I thought it was like its own little short movie that you could just divorce it from the rest of the episode and it would work perfectly
0: it's funny um that they pick Bach you know who is like famous for composing so much um spiritual music right
1: mm-hmm. well and that's what his dad says right like this is how men like me pray
0: yeah yeah, and, and it is how his son prays too, in a way to to the technical God. Um, mm-hmm. I just love that. I love that connection. Um, it makes me think that the father was maybe Lutheran. Bach uh, was uh, noted anti semite, um, but also oh. Lutheran. Um, yeah, I mean, Lutherans of that time period were. I mean, that's that's the build up to the anti-Semitism that sweeps across Europe. But he was, you know, Lutheran and Lutheranism was radical because it removed the priesthood relationship between God and the parishioners. If his father is Lutheran and has this close relationship to God through the music and the music is also the gateway that he has this close relationship to the technical boy, Like, all of that. That's just really crunchy to me. I thought it was really good. It was a good choice.
1: I also... There were just so many, like, little things that really connected with me. I love that when he's actually doing the coding, he's listening to, like, super grungy, aggressive rock music. I think it might be near universal, at least as as much as anything is, that, like, that's definitely the best music to code to. Like, I'm someone who I can't work with music on at all if I'm doing real data analysis or writing or anything but if I ever have to just like put together a piece of data processing code like Rage Against the Machine is my (laughs) (laughs) go-to. It just like yeah it gets me in the zone. I'm curious do you listen to a lot of classical music like do you have favorite classical pieces that really like move you in
0: that way? Hmm like I really love um gershwin's rhapsody in blue mm-hmm. um, i used to listen to that a lot when i was editing because to me that song is editing i don't know if you're familiar with rhapsody in blue no but it, it's the same musical phrase played over and over and over in different styles Um, And it has all kinds of false starts. Like the the melody will like build and build and build and then collapse. And then it will build and build and build in a new way and then collapse again. And I'm like, that is what editing is like. That's what storytelling is like. (laughs) And so I really love to use that song when I was um, editing, you know, stories and stuff um, from writing. Music doesn't do much for me other than like, draw me into some kind of nostalgia for something else like a soundtrack or something. Everybody else talks about like, Oh, music moves me. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't do anything for me. <laughs> I feel like kind of broken in a, in a way for that. Like, do you love classical music? Do you have like a big appreciation for it?
1: Um, So I started playing um cello when I was a kid. So mm-hmm. I kind of like grew up in the youth orchestra scene. Um, And so I have... I've like definitely a strong appreciation um, for classical music, and I feel like there's like a certain set of pieces where it's like, <laughs> if you were like a moderately advanced string player, <laughs> there's just like this like set of works that you know really well, and it's really cool because a lot of times the like pop up in pieces of pop culture, like the Wes Anderson movie Moonrise Kingdom. Most of the music is based on uh, a composer called Britton. So he wrote a uh, Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, and then there's another piece of his called Simple Symphony. Um, and so the soundtrack to that movie is like mostly just those two things. Oh um, uh, yeah. And it's like I I really I've like played those pieces a ton. Well, I played the Simple Symf- Symphony a lot, and I was like pretty familiar with the Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, too. It made that movie really fun for me. Maybe I'll put together a list, uh, a playlist, and we can put it in the show notes and then you can listen to it and see if it does anything for you. But it is, it's one of those things where like, a lot of times it is hard for me to connect to classical pieces that I have not played. But the ones that I have played, I do have this like, very intimate familiarity with. And when I hear them, I get hit with this like nostalgia for my childhood, that the the opening to the episode really kind of evoked in me. The like solo violin Bach piece that was in the the opening as well reminded me a little bit of um, like one of my favorite pieces for solo violin, which is uh, Caprice Number Twenty Four by Paganini, which is. Variations on a theme. Yeah, I'm curious if if any of our listeners, like, what your relationship to music is or or if that resonated with you or if you have, like, a favorite classical piece that, like, triggers something for you. I'd be curious to, to hear from people about that.
0: So, money, right? We, we meet the god money in this one, uh, like we were talking about earlier. And so it's impossible for me to watch the show and not think about the book. Money is the first god that they go to see after Shadow gets to Cairo. So they are keeping consistent with that. But they go to St. Louis here, which... Is there anything about St. Louis that has to do with money? That I'm, I mean, that I think they
1: have a Federal Reserve. Do they? Like, if you look at your dollar bills, some of them are printed in St. Louis.
0: Okay. In the book, they go to uh, Las Vegas to meet the god of money.
1: Which um, I feel like makes a lot of sense, right? Because mm-hmm. Vegas is just a giant black hole of money.
0: And he, he sees it as that people don't come to Vegas to win money. They come to sacrifice money and that is like powers him.
1: Oh, that's so good.
0: Yeah. This version of money is like nothing like the book. He um he's not even called money in the book, so I won't go into it too much, but there's kind of like a funny thing and I th- I think the show's kind of smart to not do this, but the character is just kind of he's referred to on the internet like as the unknown god because he's the only god that's never named in the book.
1: Wait, wait, sorry. He's referred to on the internet in the book or on the internet in real life?
0: Oh, no, I'm sorry. Like, people try on the internet in real life to figure out who this god is, and we oh, don't okay. have any way to refer to him, so you just call him the unknown god. Gotcha. Um Every time that Shadow interacts with him, like, he's there at the house on the rock, and he gives a speech, Um you know, like, Odin gives a speech, and Mama G gives a speech. He gives a speech, too, Except that Shadow can't remember it. Like, he's like, a guy gets up in front of everybody. I can't remember what he looks like. He said some stuff. I can't remember what he said. And then he goes (laughs) away. And what just happened? I can't remember. Like, what is that about? Like, is it like the invisible hand of the market? Like, you can't sense it you can't like
1: yeah um, okay there's like a
0: mystery around the character
1: no I get that because it's like money is it's not just the greatest story ever told it's like an invisible force that shapes everything but that is yeah it's kind of it's somewhat we invisible don't think like about we it. don't think about it
0: yeah yeah so they didn't do that here in the show and I don't even like it would take a lot of effort to do that and I feel like it would send the wrong signal in this age of like puzzle box shows like Westworld and stuff of like, oh, solve the narrative. Like, that's not what this is. That's not what's going on here. Yeah. Um, I'll link to some stuff um, in the show notes of like, I think people have pretty much figured out who that God is. It doesn't make the book any better or worse to know or not know, but it's kind of interesting.
1: I get what you're saying, though. I think especially in the way that the novel is being adapted on TV, where it is like, kind of, like, a little bit slowly paced compared to what people are used to in other TV shows, adding in a mystery like that that's, like, not really the main point and it's just kind of distracting, it would, like, feel like kind of a letdown if it didn't end up being, like, super relevant to how the story resolves.
0: Yeah. In, in the book, um, he joins the old gods, um, so they've kind of deviated. Uh, and actually, that section... Like when they meet that god is where they explain what Soma is. And the reason he joins them is because they give him a bottle of Soma.
1: So speaking of money, I think one of the reasons why that storyline didn't really land for me is that it wasn't clear to me why money didn't want to take an audience with Shadow and Wednesday and then like suddenly changed its mind at the end I mean, like, sure, I'll take it face value. The fact that Shadow isn't in the system, that's not the name on his birth certificate, he doesn't have any, a debit card or credit history. Why does he change his mind as soon as Mr. Worlds shows up? Like, do you have an explanation for that? Can
0: you? (laughs) I don't. That feels real rickety now that you pointed out. I should have noticed that. Yeah. yeah.
1: And that plot hole is the reason why uh, Wednesday and Shadow's Thing with money. That was my least favorite plotline. Because um, even though the ending with the technical boy and the tech CEO isn't great, at least it kind of like hangs together intuitively for me in a way that the money plotline totally just doesn't. So maybe we missed something. And if you, dear listener, have like a theory, um, please let us know. It Maybe it had something to do with like them both killing gods. Like, is that how they both got access because Mr. World shows up after he says I retired a god today
0: Mm, mm -hmm. Um,
1: and then they like have that dick swinging contest um, (laughs) about like killing different gods and whatever Um, and then it's right after Wednesday says you know like you know talks about killing Argus that then money agrees to see both of them if that is true, then like Mr. World clearly knew that that was how to do it. And he like purposely retired technical boy and like a two birds, one stone kind of thing to like get him out of the way and also get his audience with money. Whereas like Wednesday didn't realize that was the key um, and just kind of like accidentally got the audience because he killed Argus for other reasons. I don't know. The whole thing was just like very confusing and I didn't really understand it
0: no it's arbitrary and it doesn't yeah it seems like the Penny Scouts who are like the three girls are like gatekeepers that they don't ever talk to Mr. World and it's like why Yeah, we have to jump through those hoops and he didn't
1: I liked the Penny Scouts like visually
0: oh no they're cool Um, and and creepy yeah Yeah.
1: it's always nice to have like cute little girls be super creepy in some way or like you know but yeah ultimately it like didn't quite come together
0: no I-, I was stoked to see the actor um William Sanderson uh in a scene with Ian McShane again after uh Deadwood like William Sanderson is so good as E.B. Farnum on Deadwood he is like the wormiest little character and like so pathetic and hates Ian McShane's character but at the same time does whatever Ian McShane tells him to do it's so good their relationship is like fabulous on that show so it was cool as a fan of Deadwood to get to see those two actors together again but I wish like all of this made more sense and then actually came to anything because at the end it's like nothing changed so that was um yeah that was pretty weak I think we both agree on that, What did you think about the stuff with Mr. Nancy in his speech? I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but,
1: oh, I thought it was so good. I mean, uh, Orlando Jones's performance is amazing. Um, and there's actually uh, an article that we'll link in the show notes, um where, A reporter who was able to be there actually while they were filming it um talks about his experience of like watching jones go through multiple takes um and Mm. and how Mm. it was like just an amazing experience um to be there for in person um you know the references to like the school to prison pipeline and kaepernick and the nfl in general, I feel like the show is doing such a good job of taking a book that was written in 1999 and making it feel of the moment. Mr. Nancy's speeches and, and his, you know, like anger on behalf of the black community in the U S um, is like part of what makes that work so well.
0: Yeah. I, I think the performance was really good. However, I felt like, uh, some of the directing choices were not great. Like I think that the lighting was real bad sometimes. And there were there was at one point there's like a wide shot where you see Bilquis, Ibis, and Mr. Nancy who's like sitting down. I think it's kind of when he changes his accent because he's getting more and more angry, mm-hmm. which was cool. Yeah, I, I did it.
1: love the accent change.
0: Yeah, that's great. And uh, yeah, it calls back to that introduction with him in the second episode and stuff. It's, uh, but like the blocking of it, it felt like watching a play and it just didn't feel very cinematic and, it, and they all looked like silhouettes. Like I felt like they were poorly lit.
1: You know, so I definitely noticed the lighting a lot in that scene and I don't often notice the lighting, but i think some of that may have been intentional. I'm not sure. And like, it's totally fair that it didn't work for you. Um, mm-hmm. So this is, like, I think fairly common knowledge at this point, but, you know, historically, the, like, actual film and to a lesser extent now digital cameras, they're actually calibrated for white skin and to Mm -hmm. make white people look good on camera. And they, like, don't pick up dark-skinned faces and, like, expressions as well. So, like, not only is, like, you know, Hollywood and, like, The film industry racist but like the actual film itself is literally racist (laughs) um i'm interested to hear the take of an actual black person and also somebody who maybe has more knowledge of um, the technical aspects of photography and film to talk about that scene yeah and actually the scene also made me think about how rarely it is that we actually get to see In a TV show that is not like, you know, just a quote unquote black show, like multiple black people actually talking to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, I love the way that I feel like the show is like very consciously doing that. It's not just like a couple Mm -hmm. black people in a multi-ethnic group. It's like, you know, like all the black people are getting together and like talking about their blackness. Um, It's like a very intentional political way. I was thinking that they're like there should be a racial version of the Bechdel test, um, and then and if apparently you... there is.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say if you look in the planning doc.
1: Yeah, I yeah, I, so, I saw that. Um, <laughs> and like obviously the Bechdel test isn't a perfect measure of gender progressiveness, and the the racial version is is not the perfect measure of racial progressiveness, but it's at least a a population level benchmarky place to start. Where it's like, do you have Two or more either people of color or specifically black people talking to each other about something that's not a white person.
0: It's funny. Uh, I'll put that um, link in the show notes. A part of the thing there is they take like every line that a person of color in a movie says and they make like a super cut of it, you know, from this movie or that movie. Oh, and-
1: I didn't even scroll down that far.
0: Yeah, it's it's really sad because a lot of them are, like, 19 seconds or, you know, from, like, a two-hour two, two hour movie. One of them, it just shows, like, the title of the movie and then ends two seconds later because there are no <laughs> people of color. <laughs> I was like, oh, that is harsh. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good.
1: So there's one other, like, maybe Easter egg. Maybe I'm reading too much into it that I wanted to point out. Um, mm-hmm. They named her Ruby Goodchild. And I thought that might be a subtle reference to Ruby Bridges, who have you heard of her? Mm -mm. So um, I really only know about her because I saw an exhibit at the National Museum of American History, but she was the first African-American child to desegregate an all white school in Louisiana um, during desegregation Hmm. in the 60s there's like a famous picture of of her being like escorted into the school by marshals um, uh, u.s marshals yeah so basically she attended a segregated school and she um was one of the few black children to pass this test to determine if they could go to a much better all-white school Ugh. Um, and <laughs> yeah and so like there had to be like a court order to let her in and a lot of the teachers refused to teach her a lot of white parents pulled their children out it was like it was a huge deal it's like not a common name and so the fact that that was what they chose to name her I feel like it had to be on purpose
0: yeah good child is is the last name of the character um on the autopsy table in the book but this is an original creation so it's I I love what you're saying. I hope that that's true. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it it
1: is. Well, I'm like 90% sure it is. (laughs) It's great. And then the other thing I wanted to just mention very briefly was um, I love the scene where new media is rambling about, you know, like, I wonder if the next version of me will feel me inside of her. And then the next version will feel all of us. Don't you wonder about this stuff? i like... (laughs) Her delivery was so good. Um, To me, it was just like the perfect encapsulation of Twitter where it's just like every random thought that you have, like whether it's (laughs) interesting or not, doesn't speak to the, the point of anything. And it's just like really pissing off the old school people who are like, no one cares. No one cares what you think. (laughs) um so yeah i just i loved the way they kind of uh embodied that like new social media dynamic with that dialogue
0: i had not put that connection to it because all i thought in that moment was like i am new media new media is me because that that is exactly when i watch the show like what i'm huh i wonder if they feel their reincarnation i wonder (laughs) how the world i wonder yeah that's just that's like the notes that I make are exactly the words that were coming out of her mouth.
1: Okay, so I think it's time to wrap up with uh, lowlights and highlights. Alan, what was your least favorite part?
0: Uh, I talked about this earlier. I I just didn't like the blocking and lighting and stuff um, with Ibis Bilquis and Nancy. Um, it just feels like a play, um, you know, like filming a play instead of more cinematic the way that the show usually is. Uh, What about you?
1: So I totally get what you're saying about it feeling like a play, but I actually didn't mind it. And especially given the fact that they actually reference A Raisin in the Sun in Mm. the scene, which is um, a play written by Lorraine Hansberry um, from 1959. And the title comes from a poem by Langston Hughes. So like, I don't know. The whole scene, right, is about sort of like African-American intellectual inheritance and is like name dropping like a big important play. So I don't know. I, maybe part of that was a little intentional, but again, wow, that
0: kind of like fixes it for me. But, that's oh, cool. I'm
1: so glad I was able to <laughs> fix your least favorite part. Um, I mean, that's cool. it's also totally valid to say that that doesn't work for you, but maybe that's what they were going for. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah. So my least favorite part was just like the weird plot hole for why money actually decides to listen to them so
0: i can't fix that for you sorry
1: <laughs> damn it ellen <Damn> <laughs> um uh so what was your favorite part
0: i uh, i mean you know even though i just complained about it the speech where mr nancy is saying every 30 seconds another one is snatched and and then he talks for a little bit while longer about 30 seconds And then he says, and another one is snatched. And I'm like, ooh, Ooh, that's a good moment. That is so good. Yeah, and and I just love the way that that whole speech just kind of reiterates, like I said earlier, the the pitch that we're getting, like step up and earn the worship that you get from people. Uh, And then Bill is kind of countering that with, come over to our side and survive. Don't be wiped out. What about you? What did you like? this week
1: uh just the opening like yeah i just really really connected emotionally with the opening i thought it and it was doing some really interesting stuff thematically um both kind of like within just its own context in terms of like generational conflict and like the way that we connect to music and technology um and then in the broader context of the show you know with the new gods old gods split um and yeah my love of classical music, it was like kind of messy, but really thought provoking. And I just loved it. So I think that's all we've got for this episode. And just as a reminder, if you're a huge Neil Gaiman fan, um, if you like Good Omens, the novel he co-wrote with Terry Pratchett, um, you should definitely check out a podcast called Welcome to the End Times. Uh, That's produced by Chipperish Media and friends of the show, Lonnie Diane rich and Dr. Kelly Jones. The teaser episode is now up in iTunes, so you should be able to find it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, And with that, I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L.
0: You can follow the show on Twitter at ShadowShambler and visit our website at ShadowsAndShamblers.com.
1: If you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit ShadowsAndShamblers.com slash contact or send an email to contact at HallowedGroundMedia.com. Join us next week for Season 2, Episode 5, The Ways of the Dead. And don't forget to tell your friends all about us and to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts.
0: It's a story that you've heard over and over and over again. It's been drummed into you that this is something of value. No matter what country, culture, or religion, the whole world loves podcast reviews. Shadow and Shamblers is a hollowed ground media production and is released under a creative
1: commons, non-commercial, share alike, License.